Hey everyone, and welcome back to the second last episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast for 2019. I'm your host, as always, Christopher Brown. Today's guest is someone I have known for approximately two years, Miss Carrie Kendall. Carrie and I met each other in Slave Lake in 2017 during her leadership bid for the Alberta Liberal Party. We sit down and talk about her duty to serve, the 2015 federal election, her running for the Alberta Liberal Party. Along with that, we also talk about an issue close to her heart. In 2017, Carrie co-founded the nonprofit organization Ask Her. We talk about that organization. We also talk about women in politics and how we get more women involved. So sit back, relax, and enjoy cross-border interviews featuring Carrie Kendall. First off, Carrie, thank you very much for doing this. Yeah. We've known each other for a few years now. Yeah. We've met once, but we've yeah. known, <laughs> known of each other for a while. Um, the first question I always ask to people is, where does your sense of duty come from? You have put your name forward once for a federal campaign, so where did that sense of duty come from? Yeah, thanks, Christopher. No, I, you know what, it, it, I think in essence it comes from a love of people. I, I genuinely care about people. I've been very fortunate in my own life uh, to be surrounded by incredible family and friends. And if I can help out in any small way, I, I step up, maybe partly the way I was raised. Um, my mom is a nurse, my dad's a gas fitter. We're small town people and, and grew up, if you can help your neighbor and if you can make a difference, you do it. And that growing up, that sense of uh, helping out, did you have a, uh, hard time doing that or were your parents forcing you to get involved and sort of help people out help your neighbors out yeah. or was it more of a you know what yeah. I see my mom and dad doing it yeah. I'm going to do it because I want to reflect their values that they've put yeah. on to me I think it's a couple things you know there's the nature nurture uh, you know what they say but I think part of it is nature I think it's partly the way I'm hardwired uh, partly my disposition I've loved people and enjoyed people since I was a kid uh, and then also yeah you're right I saw my parents they were living breathing examples of kindness, of love, uh, the way they treated people with respect, the way our home was always open to people in need. I can't even count how many times we had different people staying with us at different times uh, who needed a place to stay. And so, yeah, I think it's partly the way I'm wired, but also partly the example uh, that my mom and dad set for me. So it sounds, um, I, the biography that I read about you, you are self-described progressive. Am I correct in stating that? I think that's very fair. So what, to you, what is progressive? So progressive to me means where do you fall? I mean, there's litmus tests, there's lines in the sand in my view. And to me, being a defender of basic human rights, and I mean that for everybody with a capital E, uh, is a progressive uh, position for me. Uh, so I'm very progressive on social issues. I'm, you know, I was raised in uh, the Protestant faith, the Christian faith, raised in the Alliance Church. So a fairly conservative uh, religious church. That being said, uh, my dad is also uh, Mennonite. And so one thing about Mennonites and, and groups of people who have faced religious persecution historically, I've seen 
a very deep commitment to separation of church and state. And to me, that's a fundamental bedrock of a functioning, healthy democracy. And so being progressive also means understanding separation of church and state. I respect people's religious views, and that's uh, you know important. Uh, I also understand that it's really important to make sure that we don't end up in a situation where there's the tyranny of the majority. And so to me, a progressive is somebody who takes uh, it's, it's progress. People who can see social progress, economic progress, who believe that when you're serving in government, it's not just for either just the majority or for a few uh, of those who who are wealthy or well off. It's for everybody. So and did that's, your parents instill that on you? Were they progressives or were they your definition of progressives? No, uh, no. They're definitely more socially conservative, for sure. However, I've also seen an evolution uh, in, in them as well. So many of my relatives including my parents, were quite surprised that I ran with the federal Liberal Party back in 2015. And they took issue with the federal Liberal Party's uh, positions on same-sex marriage as well as women's reproductive rights. And those were litmus tests or lines in the sand for the party at that time. And some relatives took issue uh, online, on social media with me as well. And 2015 was the first time that my parents ever voted Liberal. Wow. Historically, they've always voted conservative, and I think they would be described as as classically social uh, conservative. That being said, my parents also, I never saw, so both my my brother and I had close friends, good friends, uh, who were sexual minorities. And my parents treated them with incredible respect, with dignity. And so even sometimes their religious doctrine might be in conflict with how they actually treat someone. And yet what I loved about with my parents and even the evolution that I've seen in them over the years is that they really put people first. And equality and caring about people and respect and dignity of people has trumped any religious doctrine that they may have grown up with as well. So you, you talked about 2015, the federal campaign. Was that your first uh introduction to being a potential candidate? Had you thought of it beforehand or was that your first time that someone approached you or you approached the party and said, you know what, I want to put my name on the ballot? You know, yes and no. I think as a young person, I was always involved in student politics, going back right to elementary school, junior high, high school, always on student councils, held every position under the sun from president, vice president, minister of communications in high school. So I loved student politics. So it wasn't the first time I had been engaged in politics, uh, even in terms of organized politics. However, it was the first time that I decided to get involved in party politics. And part of the reason was really for a couple of things. One was the work I'd been involved in for years was immigration. And my member of parliament at the time was Rob Anders. And so I knew I knew that better was possible. I knew that many people like me were busy with work, busy raising their kids, didn't have a lot of time for politics. And my kids were getting older at that time. Uh, Jamie, I think, was 17, turning 18, my youngest. And so I was in a place in my life where I had a little bit more time that I could give to public life. And the candidate who 
was actually the candidate for Signal Hill, uh, stepped down for other reasons at very short notice. And so there was no candidate. So I stepped up very short notice. Yes, I'd had a few people who had asked me uh, to run and it was just timing. We didn't have a candidate. We needed a candidate. I had issues with respect, especially on immigration that I had seen the former government take that I this didn't agree with. former Harper government. Yes. And, and so I knew that we could do better, especially in immigration, which was my background. And so I knew it was a long shot, but I also knew it was important to make sure there was uh, a voice and to make sure that people had an, another option uh, on the ballot. And we didn't win. We came in second. We knew it was a long shot, but we got over 30% of the of the vote and we got over 19,000 votes. And it was very inspirational and it was very empowering. And after the uh, campaign, I was able to work in Ottawa for Minister McCallum at the time as his director of parliamentary affairs oh, and case that. management. So I was able to be behind the scenes, making some changes, living up to some commitments that we had made during the campaign and, and also with respect to the uh, Syrian initiative and bringing 25,000 Syrian refugees to Canada. So you played a hand in that? Uh, directly involved. I was the director of parliamentary affairs and case management. So I was right on the front lines of that. And even some of the policy changes that we made. So you may recall uh, when Jason Kenney was Minister of Immigration, he came up with the policy of four years in, four years out, meaning that that someone would come on a, on a temporary foreign worker visa after four years they had to leave. To leave for, and it was bad for business, it was yeah. bad for families, it was bad for individuals because after four years you're, you're getting set up, you're getting settled, you know, businesses had invested in the person's training and travel to Canada and the idea was people thought they would come, get a foot in the door, work here and eventually have a pathway to permanent residence. Yeah. So one of the first recommendations that I made to Minister McCallum was let's get rid of this policy. Fortunately, one of the other things that uh, Minister Kenny at the time had done was was enhanced his discretion as minister, which of course then afforded Minister McCallum to make some <laughs> changes based on ministerial discretion Probably as well. Probably never thought you'd ever say thank you, Jason Kenny. <laughs> yes, yeah. So there were things that we could do quickly in terms of policy changes through ministerial discretion um, that with even, with even within one year, uh, we were able to make uh, some changes that actually had a real impact and a positive impact for thousands of people in Canada. So you go to Ottawa after the 2015 election, you start working in a file like this, but then you decide, I want to come back. Yeah. So you come back 20, I th okay, I want to get my timeline right here. I think it's 2016 we first meet, or 2017 we first meet. 2017, 20 spring of 2017. Yeah, 2017 we meet for the first time when you run for the leadership in of Slave the, Lake. In Slave Lake. <laughs> in Slave Lake. Slave Lake, you were <laughs> one candidate who actually came to Slave Lake, and I thank you for that because... Uh, uh, it's it's hard as a uh, quote unquote liberal. It, uh, Northern Alberta is not the most friendly spot for uh, liberals. Well, so. and, and full disclosure, and and you know all cards on the table. Um, you know I have a heart for the north. You know family and friends in Grand Prairie. Uh, my husband grew up in Canusa, which is not far from from Slave Lake. Yep. And so you know to me, if we're truly interested in serving, and I, I said this earlier, but this extends as well to every part of Alberta. 
So to me, it was really important. We, we were able to visit so many communities across the province, including Slave Lake and right up to Fort McMurray. And yeah, it's important. It's important to understand what each region and, and what people's needs are, because they're not always the same in terms of what people need in Calgary and what people need in Slave Lake. Um, so we meet for the yeah. first time in 2017, the spring yeah. of 2017. Um, you go on to, to lose that yeah. uh, a leadership election for the Alberta Liberals. Uh, you decide to leave them yeah. because you, during that campaign, you were very uh, active of mer- getting the center together. Right. Alberta Party and the Alberta Liberal Party, let's put them together. And I'm not sure how much you can talk about this because of your current position, your current job, but... Seeing the state of politics today, do you wish that there was a chance that those two parties could have merged to potentially have a third option in this province right now? I think there's a need for a centrist party more now than ever. And I think I'm learning and evolving on my own language with respect to what does it mean to be a centrist. So I, I want to be a little bit mindful of that in the language that I use. Um, really what I think what we're trying to say is people who are socially progressive and still want fiscal responsibility um, from their representatives in government in terms of, look, I need you to stretch my tax dollar as far as you can and get me the best return on, on services, uh, public services. That's why I pay taxes. And whether it's health care or education, I need you to make wise decisions uh, on my behalf um, with the money that I'm working hard to earn and then uh, give with respect to my, my taxes. So, yes, I, I still believe there's that need. Uh, when we ran that campaign in 2017, the idea was, you know, official merger, in my view, was on the table. Uh, beyond that, though, I was also interested in any kind of collaboration. So whether it's having conversations uh, about where to run candidates, who's running where, whether it's having combined town halls or combined AGMs, in my view, nothing was off the table in terms of how we could collaborate with the Alberta Party and the Alberta Liberals. And, and frankly, as Lori Blakeman tried as well, uh, you know, she extended that to the NDP and, and the Green Party as well to try to get some kind of um, combined or collaborative effort uh, on behalf of progressives in Alberta. And I could understand in, you know, 2015 and even, you know, 2019, why the NDP wouldn't want to do that. I mean, my goodness, their government in 2015, their official opposition in 2019. It never made sense to me, though, why Alberta Liberals and Alberta Party wouldn't be practical and say, why are we not working together? I mean, at that point in time, they each had one seat in the legislature, and now neither party has any seats in the legislature. The Alberta Party had three. That's right, and, exactly. and, the, and the ALP had had one. So in that context, and and to be to be blunt though, it's not about, you know, it's a little different than what I saw uh, the Jason Kenney do with respect to the Wildrose and the PC. I wasn't interested in a top-down, win-at-all-cost kind of campaign. I really wanted a genuine grassroots collaboration, what works best, how do we work together, and really bringing in different perspectives in, in the process. And that's still my position, is how do we get good people to work together? And by the way, in my opinion, and some people call me a blue liberal or a red Tory, um, but it I'm, also... I, I will be the first to admit I'm a red Tory. <laughs> I, it, I was a prominent Joe Clark supporter. I liked yeah, him. I, I liked him, him as too. leader. Yeah, I did too. Uh, I ran as a liberal because uh, I didn't like Stephen Harper. 
and this new leadership race that the conservatives are going to be going through. It's going to be interesting to watch to see who they get. But I understand where you come from as a red Tory because in Alberta, you have to be a red Tory to be a liberal. <laughs> well, you know, and that's that's the other thing, though. There's a lot of great progressive conservatives. So I don't I'm also not a fan of labels. I've met so many good people from all different political parties. Yeah. And what happens, I find, is that the labels are not as useful as they may have once been because what they're doing is just dividing otherwise really good people, people who care about community, people who care about a province, the future of our province. And so I want a political movement that brings people in from all different backgrounds and perspectives, and that includes conservatives. Uh, And I'm a believer, and this is based on conversations with literally hundreds of people across the province, that when you sit down and you have a coffee and a one-on-one conversation, people in terms of where they're at on issues are actually quite progressive. And however, they still actually care about debt. They still care about a balanced budget. They care about the future of their kids. They care about jobs, of course. I mean, most people want to have a a good livelihood and a good quality of life. And so they may identify as a conservative politically, but when you have a conversation specifically on issues, there's actually a alignment and and so I'm inviting people like that too so with the last federal election we've seen a minority government pass do you think that's going to help that conversation where people will be able to get along or because of the toxic atmosphere that we are currently in and I I look at it as it's not a toxic environment as in a political environment it's the social media toxic environment the rise of social media has destroyed our culture I believe we don't talk to each other anymore we stand behind a keyboard and smash it and just attack with no care in the world so do you look at the minority government in Ottawa and say hopefully we will be able to bridge that gap and work together and find common ground you know generally (laughs) generally I am an optimistic person that is part of my disposition I think I'm hardwired for it that being said, I'm cautiously optimistic. What's interesting to watch right now from the sidelines, because I'm not directly involved at this time, is to see the block actually supporting the throne speech and supporting the liberals, at least with the minority government. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. And of course, the bloc has done that in the past with a conservative minority as well. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, Will that, I'm not sure that it's going to create the opportunity for the kind of conversations that will bring greater common ground. I think what's going to be more interesting and will have a bigger impact is the leadership of the CPC and where they go next. I actually think that those conversations will be contingent on the next leader and the direction that the party takes. Um, Whether it is more of the red Tories, the progressives uh, within the Conservative Party that lead, I could see more opportunity for that. If they take even a further hard right, I think it's going to be more difficult. And and I'm not sure, I was hopeful about the NDP federally and the Liberal federally. Politics is such a a zero-sum game. It's a winner-takes-all. And so 
unfortunately, in the current context, it just leaves so little opportunity um, for the kind of collaboration and conversation that we're talking about. And you touched on a subject where the CBC might have to go a little bit more red Tory to potentially win those voters in Ontario and Quebec. But with the rise of the Wexit movement out in Alberta and Saskatchewan, do you think it's going to be uh, the, the the conservatives will be unable to do that because they will need to uh, ensure that they keep their base happy while trying to win over those voters? Yeah, you know it's it's certainly going to be a challenge for them because they've been fortunate politically to have a base of about thirty percent of Canadians um, who religiously, <laughs> no pun intended, yeah. um, uh, really support them and they can rely on them. They're they're incredibly loyal supporters. They support them financially. They turn up to vote. And so when you have such a strong base like that, um, it becomes, you know, and, and Stephen Harper as prime minister had that challenge as well. And really they had two terms as, as minority government and then only one term as majority. So you can see what a fragile um, coalition this is. And I've always been fascinated by the movement because on the one hand, you have religious conservatives and on the other hand, you have what I would describe as libertarians. Yeah. And they're really is a lot of tension when you get right down to it between a libertarian's view of the world and a more socially religious conservative person's view of the world. And so how they've been able to cobble this coalition together uh, has been fascinating that but yeah that will be it will be a challenge for sure I also believe and this is based on some data that I've seen over the past year with respect to the Wexit movement my understanding is that it's really only a minority of Albertans so for example some of the data that I've seen in polling is maybe around 25 30 percent of Albertans would even seriously entertain the idea of separating the vast majority of Albertans understand the pitfalls, the downsides to being a very small landlocked country in the middle of North America. Trying to get a pipeline through another country <laughs> would be right. a complete hassle yeah. to begin with. So I actually, you know, it's even though there's a lot of noise and the squeaky wheel gets the grease, um, I actually, my understanding is, is that the reality is it's a very small group yeah. of Albertans. So we'll go back to your, your political path. So spring 2017... You, uh, like I said, you were defeated in the leadership race. The municipal campaign rolls around. You launch, you co-found a organization called Ask Her. I, I, I didn't want to do research on this because I wanted to learn it from it from you. So what is Ask Her and why did you find that it was important to do it during the 2017 campaign? So Municipal campaign municipal. in Calgary. Yeah, so, you know, it was interesting. I I was learning as, as I was going through the process. I had had the firsthand experience of being a, a woman candidate in federal and provincial politics. And the more I learned about what was happening in Calgary, Municipally, learning that we only had two city councillors who were women, learning that back in the 80s and even 90s we had up to six, and trying to understand why we were, in my view, diminishing in terms of representation rather than increasing. increasing. Yeah. 
uh, you know, was was troublesome. And so a group of, of good friends, uh, we got together and, and said, we got to do something about this. First, let's let people know what's going on, because many of our friends and, and family members didn't even know how underrepresented uh, we were municipally. And then secondly, how do we get more women to run? And, and all of the studies that I've seen show that women need to be asked sometimes up to seven times before they'll even consider running. And, and that had been my experience in politics too. You practically have to beg them to run. And then they will do their research. They will take time. They'll take several months to make to consider, to analyze. Whereas I find that the men that I've met in politics, they'll self-nominate. Ah, sounds like a great idea. Why not? And they make the decision much quicker. And so the reason that we came up with the um, so, name, so Ask Her, was to literally ask more women to run. So why do you think that is? Well, it's why do you think it's harder? And I'm not trying to generalize here because I'm assuming there are women out there oh. who do are are similar to the men that you've just described, yeah. where they will self-nominate themselves. But why do you think it's harder today for women to get involved in politics? Is it the role that society has placed on women, or is it the uh, the view that if a woman gets into power, and I've you hear it all the time from former female premiers that when they're in power the onslaught of negativity that they get and face is so horrendous that women look at that and say they don't want to do that. Yeah, I, I think it's multifactorial and you've definitely hit on some of the, the key issues and reasons why women are, are hesitant in general. Conversations that I've had with women who have either ran uh, or who are considering running really are cognizant of the, the threats, and I'm not just talking about, you know, verbal threats or negative social media, you know, commentary. In some cases, real threats, including death threats, physical threats, um, even, you know, Premier Notley, for example, there's been real security threats. I mean, in one year alone, I, I believe she had something like 800 threats, including, you know, security threats where um, security was needed. And so that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, for a woman to, now you're not just talking about, you know, I've got thick skin and, and but now you're talking about threats to your physical safety and that's another consideration which is another uh, a big deal in, in terms of, of stepping up and facing that kind of a, a threat I think in addition to that um, you know, we haven't had as many uh, examples of women in leadership positions or uh, whether it's municipally, provincially or federally and so there's not as many examples and I think it is true that when you see an example, you think, okay, that person did it, I can do it. And so part of it is getting that tipping point, that threshold of women in government where young women see that and say, well, yeah, of course I could, could be a, a city councillor, of course I could be in, in, in the legislature or the House of Commons or the Senate. And so part of it is, is getting that threshold. I've, I've changed my views a little bit since we first started Ask Her. Initially, my thoughts were, well, if we just got a threshold, right, if we could just get enough women to run, we'd get enough women elected and we'd get to parity quicker. Yeah. That's changed a a little bit. In addition to needing more women running, we also need to be more strategic where women run. So I've seen that 
in party politics, I've often seen where women run in really difficult, and, and it doesn't matter if, if I mean if you're a conservative a woman, you should probably be running somewhere in Alberta, and if you're a liberal, there's probably spots in, in Ontario, uh, down Toronto, down, right? Yeah, where it's if there's so we need to be more strategic and thoughtful about where women run as well, and I would say that municipally as well. So, do you think party politics has destroyed that? Because in the last election, every party came out and said, "Well, we." We got 56% women running. We got 36. We got 52. But then you look at the writings that they nominated their 52% women, and they're in very safe, liberal, NDP, conservative writings, and they're not going to win because they are just putting them up there to get that threshold. Right. So do you think party politics needs to, parties need to do a better job in identifying where they need to run the women in general and not just to put their name on the ballot. hundred percent. And, you know, I'm always mindful as well because I don't support women um, because they're women. I support women because literally at least half of the potential candidates out there are the most capable, the most competent, the most qualified, and should be there. So it's not, and it's the same likewise for a man. I wouldn't support a male candidate just because he's a guy. I'm going to support him if I believe I'm aligned with the values and and positions that he's taking on issues and because, in my view, he's the most qualified person for the job. All I'm looking for is that same thought process to be extended to, to women. And so, yes, I think there should be a deliberative action taken when really qualified, competent women are willing to run. Then let's be serious about where we support them and and where we support them in nominations where they can win. So we'll go back to the 2017 municipal campaign here. Um, So... Take me through the process of when you started it to election day. So did you start looking at each individual ward and start looking for individual candidates? Or were you just going around saying, we need as many women to run as possible to make sure our voices are heard? So, And if there's more women running, there's a potential chance that we might have more women elected. Yeah. So, you know what, interestingly, and it was more by coincidence than design, the first event that we had was where the famous five at the Heritage Park... uh, building and it was actually on Mother's Day of all things Wow! and so last minute when I realized oh my goodness it's Mother's Day and I'm a mother so I don't know how it escaped me <laughs> I went out and bought a bunch of uh, flowers so that we could at least hand out a flower to the mothers who attended the meeting and we had about 30-40 women um, attend and just by putting the call out to you know on social media and to friends to get that many women to show up to our very first meeting was really encouraging and so the call out was exactly that look at we all know great women I'm looking at some women directly at the meeting saying you need to run and literally had several coffee meetings one-on-one with women across Calgary saying I need you to step up I need you to run and our goal was to have 20 women run now we met that goal and we had I think it was six women who came in second so I mean again winner takes all second doesn't count in politics unfortunately it doesn't mean that there weren't some great campaigns and some great results we just didn't get the numbers that we needed elected so now we have three women on city council so to your point yes the initial movement was let's just ask women to run we know there's lots of smart capable women who should be running who should be serving 
they won't self-nominate so let's get out there let's meet with them one-on-one let's tell them to run and and really remind them of all of the assets and and qualities and, and what they bring to the table and why they need to run so that's what we did. We had several conversations with women. Uh, the other thing that we did was we had a campaign school where we had city councillors as, el- as well as other male and female um, politicians come to the table and did some training with potential women candidates. We did a campaign 101 and to give people tools because a lot of the women who were stepping up had never run before. Okay. So that was that was part of it. Um, but like I said, that so idea three, has evolved now. So the three candidates, the three count, current councillors, who won were they under your umbrella or no. were they because two of them I'm assuming got re-elected that's right yeah and I, I wouldn't say that any of the women per se were under our umbrella there there wasn't a formal umbrella per se it wasn't like a slate of candidates it wasn't like we hand-picked candidates it was really just a grassroots call out everybody asked these great women to run so there wasn't an umbrella for any of the candidates all it was was look at hey if you're interested and it was nonpartisan. that's the great thing about municipal politics so we had women from various you know political backgrounds come to the table and it was just a call out to say hey we need you to run so it wasn't very formal and even to this day even though I'm no longer on the board I was just at a recent ask her meeting where um, two Calgary city councillors as, as well as a councillor um, from Olds or Okotoke sorry uh, were presenters it also is not a formal movement today. It really is more of a support group, if you will, to to say to women, okay, we're going to connect you because the other thing that we struggle with as women, we don't always have the same kinds of connections as men in business or in politics. And so to start to create a network, a support group for women, um, to to show women and give them tools of of how to fundraise, how to connect, how to run a campaign, basically the the basic um, essentials of running a campaign and so even to this day it's not as formal as an umbrella it really is just a support group to say here's some information here's some resources so go ahead do you think you'll ever see parody we will i'm just not sure it's going to be in my lifetime really Uh, yeah so we we will we'll get there do you think the uh, maybe in my daughter's lifetime do you think the needle's moving are enough quick enough no or do you think it needs to move faster no some of the recent reports and trajectories that i've seen including by the united nations has been we're looking at about a 90 year and that includes canada wow. so yeah and what's fascinating though is canada you know we're we're at about you know a third just over a third in the legislature just over a quarter in the house of commons and i think we're at about 15 percent on calgary city council so yeah we've got a long ways to go and it's a very slow moving uh, process unfortunately do you so, think it's easier or harder now than it was when you were at that six councillors in calgary mm-hmm. to be a woman running in calgary That's a tough question. Um, You know, I I wasn't involved in the 80s, um, so it's hard for me to say. Um, But you must look and see, okay, they elected six. There's a a reason there was six elected. Now we only have three. Yeah. So to me, it looks like in Calgary, it might be harder for a woman to put her name forward and be taken serious to be elected. Not saying that the three aren't who are current. 
ML, uh, MLAs, uh, counselors, yeah. but it must be hard for a woman to look at running municipally where there are no party politics to go, you know what, there's a chance of me winning. Mm-hmm. Because in municipal politics, and I think you will agree with the statement, if you get elected, you're probably in there for a few terms. Mm-hmm. We have a current counselor who's in this ward who's been there since the 80s. Yeah. So you, you look at it and go, is it a losing battle to put my name forward? Yeah, yeah. I think, and, and in addition to what you've just said, your earlier point with respect to the toxicity and social media and threats and challenges that women face, that also applies municipally. So in some, so? in some respects, oh, for sure. In some respects, I would say on that front, it's more difficult for women to run in that context. And this was an interesting point that was brought up at the last Ask Her meeting uh, just a, a couple weeks ago. And again, I, I'm also careful of generalizations because I also understand that there are uh, men and women who are collaborators and, and there are women who are more aggressive and, and more akin to, to maybe a more male-dominated style of politics. That being said, what I have seen is women do tend to collaborate and across party lines. And there are many examples of, of women looking to, um, you know, bipartisan work on committees. When I was in, in uh, Ottawa, I often saw, you know, women reaching out across the aisle and looking to find ways to um, collaborate and work on committees together to come up you know, with solutions that serve people. So I think there is, uh, for, for women, there is in general uh, a disposition or a focus on how are we going to work together regardless of, of where somebody may come from. And it happens in, in municipal too. So even though there, there is not party politics, there are leanings or affiliations or even perceptions of where a municipal candidate may fall on the political spectrum. And, you know, whether it's, you know, Diane and Drew, even though they may appear uh, in some people's view to have different political leanings, they're also willing to collaborate on city council together across, you know, those kinds of perceived or or real political lines. And so I, I think that is an asset that women bring to the table in politics. Um, however, in politics and in our political system where it's winner takes all, where we're living in a, at a political time right now where it's become very toxic, where it's become divisive, where it's become um, combative, and in my view, almost more so in the last couple of years, and, and not just here in Canada, but also you know in, in the United States, across North America, that's not conducive to really giving people who are inclined towards more collaboration an advantage, right? I mean, I've seen this in in my own political endeavors. My disposition is to look for the win-wins. My disposition is to look for collaboration. And you can see that even with trying to get the Alberta Party and the ALP to work together. And again, not coming from a top-down perspective, but asking, how could we work together? Just asking the question and and reaching out. And so that wasn't a successful strategy in a winner-takes-all leadership race. And it was an honest strategy. It was was a real strategy, but not in the context of a winner-take-all. And so I think that's also a challenge for women at all orders of government in that kind of a political context. It doesn't necessarily give us the advantage. So if if someone was to come to you tomorrow, a woman, 
came to you tomorrow and said, I'm thinking about running for politics, but I'm not 100% sure. Mm -hmm. What would you tell them? Do it. Why? You got to do it. I would say if we're going to actually make real changes to systems, if we're going to change the political context, if we're going to change the political game, you got to step up and do it. Because if, if you don't, then what is will be. And so the only way for us to actually have an impact, to have an influence, is to step up, get in that arena, get your nose bloody. It's tough. It's challenging. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but it is, in my view, more important than ever for women to step up. We, we need them to step up. We need people who know how to collaborate, build bridges, build relationships, problem solve, reach across the aisle. In my view, now more than ever. But to be devil's advocate here, and I'm not trying to generalize because I, I'm, I'm even like grimacing at the fact that these words are going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> but if I was a woman coming to you and saying, I have a family, a young family, I want to get involved, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to balance the political life to family life. Why would I do it now? So some good, so, like I said, yeah, those no, really hard no, and those are, those are fair. And I've, 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 you know, to be fair, I've, I've heard that from, from many women yeah. uh, and that's part of the context. That's part of the analysis. Some good news, like I said, I'm probably hard, hardwired for optimism as well, <laughs> is I've seen women successfully do that. You have to have the, the supports in place. So, you know, one of my friends, Kara Levis, she's got four young children and she's a dynamo. I mean, what this woman can accomplish is unbelievable. She She's the current uh, provincial organizer for the Alberta Party. She's also a lawyer, works for Trans Canada, and has four young children. So if she can do all of that, she can also handle doing politics and, and running for office. However, I will also add to that, though, she's got the supports in place. She's got a supportive partner. She's got support on childcare. It takes a village. You can't do it alone, but you can do it if you've got the supports in place, whether it be family, friends, you know, whatever your situation is. And that's part of what Ask Her has done and part of what I do on an ongoing basis is to make sure that women know they've got that support group, that they've got people in their corner. And it means sometimes very practical things like even uh, childcare, for example. So yeah, it, it is it is possible. Good news. I've seen women successfully do it. And so yes, you need the supports in place. But yes, it can be done. And we need more women who, who have those kinds of, you know, aspects of their life to do it. Because guess what? Issues like childcare, for example, are not going to be at the forefront of the conversation, unless we have young mothers, young fathers, you know, people in the legislature who understand the yep. concern and the need. And now to flip that back on you do we not need to have a conversation with the male elected oh, leaders as well because 100%. we're talking about hey we need to put our issues at the forefront women's issues at the forefront but if men are not talking about yeah. this because they, let's be honest they're prominently elected right now like you said mm -hmm. uh, three out of the twelve nine however many counselors there are in yeah, Calgary. 14, yeah. 14, sorry, yeah, yeah. are men. Yeah. So we have to have that conversation with men as well, don't we? And say, yeah. you know what, while our, the demographic might be more male-dominated right now, you need to worry about women's issues as well. Yeah, 100%. And some, some more good news. We've also seen an evolution uh, with men as well. So we are seeing more and more men take parental leave, uh, have, you know, th that's changed as well. I've seen it in my circles of friends and, and family where they're taking on more of the childcare uh, 
roles who also they also have a, a really deep understanding of, of the need and concern for affordable child care so it is changing so sometimes it's not changing as quickly as we'd like but some good news is that is changing and some of these issues are also top of mind um, for male politicians as well well it's good like it's, it's changing cool. it's I'm glad that I, I yet again I'm new to Calgary so I don't know the working dynamics of the Calgary City Council yet I'm trying to learn a little bit more I'm learning all the councillors but it seems and correct me if I'm wrong we have a semi-progressive council right now correct I think that's a fair assessment sure do you think they are looking after women's issues correct uh, properly I've seen some developments over the last two years. Um, certainly the current council and, and mayor have been a very strong voice for enhancing diversity uh, in Calgary and supporting more voices um, in terms of issues in our city. And I've definitely seen some movement in understanding that diversity also includes women and women from many different backgrounds, you know, religious backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, professional backgrounds. Uh, you know, across you know socioeconomic backgrounds, and so yes, I've I've seen the needle moved a little bit, and an openness among some city councillors in terms of being a voice uh, for women's issues, and so that's encouraging as well. There's still work to do, but I've I've seen the dial moved a little bit. So where do we go from here? <laughs> Take a drink if you want, because you're literally about to go. I, I don't know. I'm not sure this water uh, is enough for, for that big of a question. Well, where do we go? Because we want to move the needle forward. We want more women to run. We want to be more uh, equal in our footing. But how do we do that? And yeah. where do we go from here? So not for the faint of heart, but absolutely necessary. And we have to be very practical and take real steps in achieving that. So some good news, municipally here in Calgary, Asker has got an incredible dynamic board of directors. Najwan is the current president. She's also a powerhouse. She's got a, a master's in uh, sustainable development and environment. She works in the oil and gas industry. And we've got some real, and Jillian, we've got some real dynamos on the board. They are moving it forward. They've got a four part series right now supporting women and really shifting the focus to not only asking women to run but also supporting them and electing them uh, on campaigns coming up in 2021 for the next election so there's some real groundwork that's taking place right now which I find incredibly encouraging. I also see some movement in all of the parties. I, to, to be fair I call a spade a spade. I'm, I'm not an NDP supporter but I've seen some real movement in the NDP party under Rachel Notley's leadership in supporting women, and I think that's fantastic. I've also seen, to be fair to the UCP, um, they are also, at least within their own party, trying to make efforts uh, to support women. And certainly the Alberta Party, which I've been involved in uh, in the past, and they also are making some incredible strides in, in to support women. So the good news is, is that it's there are real efforts being made. So my perspective is, it's not the time to give up, it's the time to dig deep and to really uh, reinforce our efforts to reach out to support women in practical ways on campaigns with fundraising with volunteers because it's the ground game so everything else is important but you've got to have a really strong ground game to win elections and I think if we can give women who are competent and capable and qualified the kinds of supports they need to win we're going to see more women elected on the flip side though uh, we 
have a prime minister who's announced a gender balance cabinet, not once but twice. When that happened, you, I would have assumed women would have been happy. But you do see some who say a woman should not get a position of power like that unless they're qualified. Mm -hmm. So you shouldn't be putting that position of tokenism uh-huh. of making a gender balanced cabinet unless they're qualified. So so this is actually where, you know what's interesting, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because this is actually not in substance, but in how it's done where I disagree with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So yes, I'm all for parity. I'm all for making it a priority. I'm, I'm passionate about that. I've, I've given significant time, energy and money towards the cause. However, what I would have done, which is different than what he did, even back in 2015. Yes, I would have taken a look at who the MPs were in the qualifications. I, from my perspective, when I looked at that cabinet in 2015, wow, there were some people with, you know, incredible professional experience that were taking on portfolios that they were very well suited for, men and women. Yeah. So rather than saying, look, at it's, it's 2015, we're, we're having, what I would have done with the media, people would have noticed. There would have been questions. Wow, you've got parity in your cabinet. You know what I would have said? What? Guess what? Take a look at their CVs. And I would have challenged people. I have appointed the best, the most qualified people for these ministerial portfolios. And if there's any issue with, with any minister who you don't think deserves it, then take that up with me because I've it's there's parity. However, there is also the best and the most qualified people taking on these positions. And so I would have left it at that. I don't know that I would have taken his position, which was it's 2015. Yeah. We're having parity. Yeah. Right? No, I wouldn't have done that. I would have just left it out there because believe me, the media would have picked up on that, that there is parity. They would have had questions and then I would have been ready with the response. Look, we've got the best people uh, in the right jobs. So I, I think he could have handled that narrative differently because what I don't want to see is, to your point, this idea of tokenism, not for men and not for women. I want the best qualified and the most capable, caring, compassionate, smart people in these positions. And in my view, if that's what we're going for, you will see half of them will be women because that's the demographics. You'll, you'll see these incredible people who just happen to be women taking on these leadership roles. So I, I'm very mindful of, of how that narrative is rolled rolled out. And I, I think that could have been handled better. And we've talked about getting women involved. We've talked about parity. One big issue, I, I had a Women's Week on the podcast a few months ago, and I talked to women, all backgrounds, young, old, mother, daughter, everyone. And the one thing that I heard was... While it's hard for a woman to fight to get noticed in a male-dominated society, it's also hard for a woman to fight to get noticed when you have other women trying to knock you down because they may not agree with you. So back to my point of women's women attacking the prime minister for being parody, how do you try to advance the cause while you have other women potentially trying to thwart you. Sure. So, I mean, it's like a politics, as as we know, is a tough business. I'll, I'll be honest, of all yeah. the crazy things I've done in my life, I was a teacher, I've, I'm a lawyer, I'm an adjudicator, I've done many different things. It is by far the most challenging endeavor that I've ever taken on, and partly because of those kinds of attacks. That being said, I think that had the Prime Minister 
sent the narrative and messaged it that look at we've got the best people in place it would have undercut any kind of criticism on that front before it even could could gain any ground so I, I think part of the way that you deal with that kind of effort to thwart or attack women is it's very easy to attack and say oh well it's tokenism you're just doing it because you want half women it doesn't matter who these women are yeah nonsense nonsense it does matter who these women are and these women were doctors they were lawyers they were people with incredible uh, professional backgrounds and highly qualified road scholars I mean I'm talking about competent qualified ready to go people and so and they happen to be women so I think that could have been messaged completely differently and had the prime minister messaged that differently those kinds of arguments or criticism would have been undercut before they could even begin Wow. Um, looking, uh, what's next for Kerry? <laughs> I'm poli- not dead yet, Christopher. I'm not dead <laughs> what, yet. Is politics still in your future? Or is it something that you've been there, you've done that? I, I've got to ask, because like your campaign, <laughs> do you plan on running in the, any potential future election? You know... <sighs> I, I care deeply about the future of our province. I've got young adult kids. They're in their 20s. Which I still can't believe. FYI. So <laughs> I think you're lying. Okay. No, no, true story. Jordan's 24. Jamie's 22. Um, I care about their futures. I'm very concerned about the direction our province is taking right now. And, you know, if you want to see change, you got to step up and, and be part of making that change. I have, again, back to my parents and their example very industrious walk the walk kind of people and not people to sit on the sidelines they they take action they do what they can with what they have that's part of my makeup it's part of who I am and so yeah I can't make any promises as to whether I would run again right now but I've got the bug I care deeply about people and I'm not sure how much longer I can be on the sidelines watching some of the decisions that the current uh, government and the UCP are making on behalf of Albertans. I don't believe it's aligned with the majority of Albertans. I don't think that they're making good economic decisions for the future of our province and for my kids' futures in terms of the kind of employment that's going to be available to them in the future. And so it's, it's, it's a maybe for me. It's, it's, it's a maybe. We've talked about the toxicity of politics. If your kids came to you tomorrow and said, I'm thinking about running in 2021 or 2022 in the next provincial or whenever the next federal election is, would you support them? Or would you say, you know what? It's a challenge. I respect your decision, but it's up to you. Well, on, on the one hand... You know, I want young people to engage. And and in Finland, of course, we see all these young women in their 30s taking on big leadership roles. I think it's. Prime Minister of Finland. Yeah, that's right. right. And I think it's important to have young people at the table as well. I'm a big believer in seeing diversity, which also includes age diversity, at the table and making decisions because they have a lot of future at stake relative to maybe some of us. So, yes, I I would. And I, you know what, I'd have to also be supportive of them because they've also been supportive of me. Uh, So they've 
they've been directly involved in my past campaigns. So, you know, I, and they know, I mean, their eyes would be wide open. They've, especially my, my daughter has seen firsthand some of the attacks that I um, saw against me, you know, from strangers really. So I didn't take them personally, but you know, people telling me to go kill myself and all kinds of sexual innuendo and crazy stuff, crazy stuff. Still can't believe that. So there's, there is some crazy stuff out there. And so my daughter has seen it firsthand and she she probably took it harder than I did uh, back in 2015. So both of my kids would be going in with eyes wide open. They've been part of my campaigns. They've been supportive. Uh, I do want to see more young people step up. So yes, I, I would be supportive uh, of both of my uh, kids. I mean, they're adults. They're very capable, intelligent, compassionate human beings. And so yes, I, I would support them. Looking back on your life to date, would you have done anything differently? Wow. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I would have. I, I want to I want to learn from my mistakes. Um, I'm a lifelong learner and I have learned, you know, if we're talking political endeavors, I've definitely learned um, from things that I've done in the past. Number one, got to step up early. I've always stepped up late and under sort of situations where it was a bit reluctant. I, I wasn't necessarily gung ho to step up. So if I ever step up again, uh, what I would change from what I did in the past and what I would do differently in the future would be to step up early and to step up wholeheartedly. So, you know, not late in the game, not reluctantly, not under uh, you know pressure of not really sure if I wanted to do it or not. I, I want to learn from, from that experience and I would do that differently. And my last question, and it's a big one. Um, what? Uh, I want to word this correctly here. <coughs> Sorry. Um, what does the future hold for everything? Wow. Do you think, I know we, know we talked about it briefly, about how you might not see parody in your lifetime, but do you think Alberta, Canada, women's rights will get better, or do you think we're in for a long haul of potentially having a fight on our hands that needs to be fought before we can officially start growing as a society? Yeah. I think, unfortunately, sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. So I do see at least a period of time, at least a couple of years, where it's going to be very difficult for many in Alberta and in Canada. I also see, I can see what a positive vision for our future here in Alberta could look like. I can see, I've met so many incredibly dynamic, talented people who've come to Alberta, either you know First Nations people who've been here for thousands of years, or Métis, or people who, you know, their families have been here for a couple of generations, or people who just arrived, you know, last year. We have the human talent and human resources here to be leaders, leaders on energy, leaders on innovation, leaders on medical research treatment. 
leaders on agriculture. We have so many, the film industry, we have so many opportunities in Alberta. I can see a future that is incredibly bright and incredibly positive for Albertans. I can see it. It's almost within, it's almost within reach, but it doesn't happen accidentally. It takes people stepping up, deliberately making good decisions. My hope is that we will make some decisions over the next few years where 30, 40 years, 50 years from now, future generations will look back and say, wow, thank you for making some good decisions. And and I mean that in terms of of climate change and having really strong policy on climate change, on innovation, and in terms of all the byproducts that we can, you know, the petrochemicals and things that we can do um, with oil and gas. Our resources are not just oil and gas. We all know that. And it's our loyalty isn't to oil and gas. Our loyalty is our quality of life, being able to provide for our families, being able to provide for our kids, to make sure our kids have the same quality. We work hard. We make sacrifices for our kids so that they can have a better future. And I believe that hope still exists and that opportunity still exists. But we've got to take action and we've got to make deliberate decisions to make that happen. But there's enough people here in Alberta that if we work together, we can we can realize that vision. And that, I believe, can happen within my lifetime. Okay. So I, was, I said that was my last question, but you just opened up a can of worms that <laughs> I need to ask this question. Um, the 20s, 30s, there was a revolution. We got new engaging technology, airplane, cars, 60s, 70s. We engaged. We got the bombs, right? Yeah. So we kept, we kept on moving forward. It seems, and this is my perspective, our generation, our society today has become stagnant. We want to move forward, but we don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. We want other people to do it. We don't want to ruin the way of life that we currently have. So when you talk that it might happen in your lifetime, how do we get that without becoming reliant on other people? Because unless I'm going out there and pushing hammer to nail and saying we need to get the climate under control, no one's going to listen. So some good news. We, we actually have the movers and shakers right here in Alberta. So whether they're working for the big oil and gas companies, whether they're they're starting their own startups and innovation, I mean, the rain the rainforest group here in Calgary, the Energy Futures Lab, some of the leaders with the big companies, uh, Imperial Oil, I mean, some of these people are already on the front of this. And you, you may have seen in the news not long ago the hyperloop that was proposed between Calgary and Edmonton. I would love that to go back and, and forth to Slave Lake. Right, and... <laughs> And what they're what they're saying is they're not even asking for provincial monies for this. They're just asking for some, some support in terms of regulatory framework. And there, obviously, there would be some expropriation of land yep. uh, to make it feasible to make it happen. And they're even talking about you know, construction in 2022, which is really not that far away. Um, a good friend of mine is senior counsel for Finning, and he was telling me in terms of the automation and things that we're seeing, which unfortunately displaces and, and we lose jobs because of that. But that automation is already happening today. The movers and the shakers are here in Alberta. We need partners in government that will facilitate the movers and shakers here in Alberta. So is it possible to move towards, you know, more green energy, more innovation on that? Absolutely. They're here. How many, the transferable skills with with how many engineers we have in this province, the talent is here. The vision is here. So yes, we can make it happen. We need partners in government, and I don't care what political party, but we need partners in government that will facilitate. Uh, and that 
that's why it's been so disturbing to see some of the decisions, including canceling the innovation uh, tax credits, which they, was a program brought under the NDP. Yeah. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when you change government. If good ideas were in place that are working, you build on them. You might tweak them, you might do some things differently or improve them, but you don't throw it all out. But as that's a, what's concerning to me. But as a fiscal conservative, you must think, okay, we need to get our bal- books balanced. We need to make sure that we uh, don't push off all our debt to our children, our grandchildren. 100%. So I understand you don't throw out the bathwater, but you have to throw out some programs because you know what? Not everything is going to make fiscal sense right. in and, the long run. Right. And you need to look at what programs actually give a return on investment. So if a program is actually bringing more jobs to Alberta, creating employment, creating a bigger tax base, you know, bigger revenue source for programming like healthcare and education, and you have to prioritize and, and agreed, tough decisions have to be made. In my view, the current government is not getting the right balance, in in my view. And my understanding is they're even, by putting all of their eggs in one basket, which is just traditional oil and gas, they're missing out on economic opportunities for our province. And we're going to be left with more debt under this government than we were under the NDP. So I've seen a bit of a pendulum swing in Alberta politics. Went to the NDP in 2015, went to the UCP in 2019. My hope for 2023. You just want that pendulum to go right to the middle. Right, the- just let's get the balance. <laughs> let's let's get. We have to be fiscally responsible with yeah. people's tax dollars, and and we people aren't willing to give up healthcare or education, and those are investments, and and we see many different kinds of return on those investments, including future jobs, by the way. And so, yeah, we've got to find that balance. And I just want us to recalibrate. We need a steady hand at the wheel. I don't want the left ditch, and I don't want the right ditch. I want a steady hand at the wheel that can take us forward to to the vision that we've been talking about for the future, the economic and social future of our province. Perfect. We'll leave it there because like I said, we, we could go on for days. We, we will could go do on a for recap. Days. We'll do an episode two, <laughs> two months from now. But Carrie, thank you very much for sitting down with yeah, me. Yeah, thank you very much, Christopher. Always a pleasure to chat with you. So once again, I want to thank Carrie for sitting down, chatting today. Greatly appreciate it. I learned so much from her about her organization, Ask Her. So I just want to announce that we will be off next weekend. So no new episode on Saturday. But if you haven't already, be sure, go back, listen to some past episodes of the Cross Border Interview Podcast on one of the many podcast listening channels that you can get google play apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify we're there go there listen to the past episodes that you haven't re-listen to your favorite episodes if you haven't already subscribe give us some likes give us your feedback what are we doing right what are we doing wrong we want to hear from you directly thank you very much uh like i said we will be off next week So with that, I want to wish everyone here Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. We will see you after the holidays on December 28th with a brand new episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. (laughs) 